Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilzak. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Bria Willingham from SUNY Plattsburgh about her research and teaching on incarceration and the lives of people who are incarcerated. This is episode 22 of Untenure Tracks. about the States of Incarceration Project. Mm-hmm. It is finally, it's been two years in the making and it's finally coming to fruition and we have our opening exhibition next month. So States of Incarceration is a project out of the Humanities Action Lab and that's out of Rutgers University. Mm-hmm. How uh, they sponsor you know, different programs and States of Incarceration is one. So States of Incarceration is made up of um, partners from uh, across the country, um, and I can't remember the, the exact number of partners, but it includes uh, universities and colleges across the across the country. And each institution chooses an issue that's related to mass incarceration, mm-hmm. um, but that's local to their community. So, so in other words, taking a you know taking a, a, a really really large global issue and localizing it. So my um, my focus, my students' focus, is on higher education in prison. So I had to teach I, as part of my partnership with SOI. I did a um, special topics course on higher education in prison. So I taught that last fall, mm-hmm. last year fall. And as part of the class, the students really became my research assistants. That's what the you know the how the class was run because it was project driven so I had over I think about a dozen guest speakers joining via Skype as a matter of fact to talk about their experiences with uh, with running college and prison programs across the state mm-hmm. and I'm in New York State and we had um, one woman who does a, a program in, um, in Georgia in the women's prison there uh-huh. and then we had a formerly incarcerated guy, man, who spent time across New York State and several prisons across New York State. And one of the most, um, uh, one of the ones that he spent time in was in Clinton Correctional Facility, which is just 20 miles from our campus. And this is the prison where they had the great breakout, what I think was in 2015 or 16. Um, And anyway, um, so he came in and he spoke about his experience with being in, in um, prison and um, being in solitary confinement and, and how um, education came into play for that. So students got to do a, a lot of, um, you know, first person, you know, interviewing um, and um, really doing digging into the research and learning about higher education in New York and across the country. And then we had to... And this was and this was the hard part. So our display panel that mm-hmm. becomes part of the States of Incarceration's National Traveling Exhibition, 
then we had to come up with, a, you know, the typical research question, title, and abstract. But I let the students do that because they needed to know how hard that stuff really is to do. So they essentially had to take 15 weeks and boil it down to 150 words, I believe it was. And or maybe or maybe it was 250. It wasn't a lot, you because you know yeah. how abstracts go. Oh, yeah. So they um so they were a little uh intimidated by that and they said oh my god this is so hard i said yes welcome to academia so they (laughs) (laughs) so they settled on um titling the project cuffs to classroom Uh um higher education in prison and uh so the the main research question was how how can um wait 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 let me get it right (laughs) uh Oh, wait, wait, wait. Now I got to look it up because uh, this is so crazy because it went through so many different um, iterations that sometimes I forget what the the final one was. So I'm looking at it now. Okay. How can higher education redefine mass incarceration in New York's North Country? So, uh, you know, because I'm way up by Montreal, so this is the North Country of New York State. So, (laughs) um, yeah. So, um, So that's that. And so then I had to of course, massage it and, and take all, all the kinks and everything out. And then I had to uh, track down some pictures because the pictures need to tell the story as well. So, uh, and because this is a, partly a, a history project as well. So I had to track down some old pictures from one of the first um, prisons in the state to have higher education courses um, and and then bring it you know, all the way to present day. So finally got the mock-up of it and it looks great. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the exhibition opens here at SUNY Glassburg on January 30th. And it'll be here until March 13th. And then from here, it goes to West Virginia. And when it leaves here, our display panel leaves with it. Oh, wow. And it becomes that it now is part of the National Traveling Exhibition. So when it leaves here, it goes to West Virginia. I don't know if it goes in where it's going after West Virginia, but every place that it goes, it picks up the local partners um, display panel. And then, you know, so that that creates the exhibition. And so Plattsburgh is the only SUNY campus that's part of this. So that's a big, you know, big deal for us. Yeah. And it has just been a lot of work for the last two years. <laughs> and you, it almost feels like doing the dissertation all over again. Really? Because, you know, you're right, cause, you know, you remember how it was when you, you do all the research and you're doing all the writing and, you know, um, it, it seems like it's never going to get done. And then all of a sudden it's here. So I'm, I'm, rel- <laughs> I'm, I'm reliving that moment all over again. So, But I'm super excited about it. I can't get past that you made the students write the abstract. The abstract is the worst no, part. Yeah, I know, because they needed to... Well, first of all, this was class, so they had to do some work, right? Yeah. So what I did So what I did with that was I broke them up into groups, and I had you know each group come up with an abstract, and then I shared them all in class, and we took um, the best parts out of each, um, each group's abstract. Yeah. And then... And then, of course, I had to massage it all and make it, you know, error-free or, or, you know, fix the grammar and the spelling and all of that. I did some serious editing to, you know, to make sure that it was tight. Um, So, yeah, so they they needed to get that experience, and I had no problem doing that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
kind of Frankenstein together all those abstracts. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. so much fun. <laughs> um, right, exactly. How, how did you get hooked up with these people? Like I've never um, I've never heard of states of incarceration before. Yeah, so it was actually um, our now former community um, engagement person here, mm-hmm. woman named Julia De- Julia Devine, and um, so this was now two summers ago, and she had emailed me and she said, "Hey, I heard about this project. I know you know this is right up your alley. Are you interested in doing this?" And I was like, "Hell yeah!" So that's pretty much how we, how it got started. So someone brought it to me. Uh-huh. Because they know about my work here, you know, about my research interests. So yeah. So, so yeah. So what kind of stuff did you find during the course of the project? Um. Well, you know, for me, because I, I you know, researched this stuff already, mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, it wasn't brand new to me. I had fun watching my students learn about it. Okay. About higher education in prison. So, um, uh, so some of the things that came up during the during the course was how Clinton Correctional Facility um, has not had a college in prison program since 95 when mm-hmm. they graduated the, the last class. So the um, um, Clinton Community College used to offer classes through IHEP at Clinton. And um, so that was so, you know, back in the 90s and 80s when higher ed in prison was was thriving and before mm-hmm. Bill Clinton's crime anti crime bill, you know, essentially obliterated these programs. Yeah. So that's why they you know, graduated their last class in ninety five. Mm-hmm. And but I will say what was most surprising to me is that SUNY Plattsburgh and Clinton Correctional has have never had a a partnership in the sense of um, an established um, college and prison program. So I always found it interesting that we have these two state institutions, two very different ones, but two mm-hmm. state, well, not too much different, but two state institutions. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but <laughs> I was thinking it. <laughs> like, it needs to be said. It needs to be said. <laughs> and who are just 20 miles apart, and they don't have an um, established formal education partnership. And so one of the things that I kept stressing to the students is, you know, this is what we really need to be focusing on. And, you know, what do you think that would look like, you know, um, and how do you think that would change the culture of that prison where <clears throat> violence is, is, you know, on the regular, um, where the men are dehumanized, mm-hmm. um, where the men are um, routinely brutalized and, you know, because the, the the prison is made up of black and brown men from downstate, mm-hmm. but the people who work there are from up here, and they look like you. So, um, <laughs> so there, so there's that that that's where that tension comes into play. Uh-huh. So anyway, so I was you know telling the students, you know, we really need to think about what this what a program in prison, higher education program in prison would look like, and uh-huh. how do you think that would change the culture of um you know of that prison um and so that i made them so i made i, I would ask and to me simple questions simple but questions with a lot of layers to them yeah so that they would have to start peeling the onion and really starting to see how um you know how how the prison came to be in terms of its um its culture and then 
how powerful of a force education is and if it came into that prison how would it change it and so those so those were I think that, that was the main point that I wanted to, wanted them to understand and to really interrogate yeah so uh, so it, it, and, oh and one more thing that was most fascinating about that is that when the semester started so I, I had 15 students which was a perfect size for a project class mm-hmm. so um, when I first started about half they were split in half half you know, said, yeah, offer um, higher education to people in prison. And the other half said, no, let's not do that. Before the end of the semester, it, it, it changed, and then uh-huh. everybody was on board. Yeah. So that was one of the most, um, I, I thought that was, uh, I thought that was a, a powerful shift yeah. because it, it illustrated Again, the power of education. So here you have these students who were staunchly against it. And some of them have relatives who work in that prison or in other prisons. Mm -hmm. So they were staunchly against it. But then once they started to see what it can do and when our guest speakers came in, then it was like, oh, so part of our display panel, then um, the second part is about our our it's called our point of view. And so um Every you know every partner on their display panel has to have a, a section about our point of view. So mm-hmm. I, I say in that in that section what I just told you in the beginning we we were split, but now we all agree, blah blah blah. And then I have a flip book that's part of it too with my students' um, um, headshots, or I like to call them mugshots. <laughs> so their headshots in there. Um, <laughs> And in a quote that answers the question, what does higher education in prison mean to you? Yeah. And so that's really powerful, too, to see how they how they now view higher education in prison. So, yeah, I rambled on, didn't I? <laughs> no, no worries. Um, so I'm curious. So for the students that were against it, is there like, do they have like a eureka moment or is it like a gradual change throughout the course of the semester? Like, I'm just I'm just wondering, like. What's when is the tipping point for them where they they finally change their mind? Um, I think it was uh, I, I think it was a combination. I think it, it I started to notice it gradually, like during some of the, uh, some of our discussions or um, you know after some a, re- a particular reading or whatever. Um, you know, I started to see some people say, "Oh." Okay, I, I think I get it now. So it it was like you know gradually seeing that that light come on, like you start to see the light flicker, uh-huh. and then all of a sudden they have that you know over aha moment, and it's like <laughs> aha, okay, and then the light is fully turned on, and I'm like got it right. So um, and I I think for a lot of them that happened when Tyrell Muhammad came in, and that's our um that. Tyrell is our community partner who works with the Correctional Association of New York, and he's the one I, I referenced earlier who had spent time in solitary at Clinton. Mm-hmm. And so when he came in and he told his story, mm-hmm. I think um, that really started to uh, change a lot, you know, shift a lot of lot of minds during that time. Yeah. Would, would he have been the first person that had any kind of justice involvement that your students would have would have ever encountered before? No, 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 not like, not students in my class. Okay. Because no. I, I, you know, I often um, have people uh, who are formerly incarcerated mm-hmm. talk via Skype in mm-hmm. my classes. Okay. So, um, so yeah. 
Or yeah. just yeah, just wondering because sometimes that itself could be like the first like people are people too <laughs> kind right. of moment yeah, exactly. the students can have. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what about um so what what kind of conclusions do students come to about like the importance of higher education in prison? Like what would what would your students say is the benefit of it? Oh, well, hey, I'm glad you asked because I can actually read you some of their comments. <laughs> yeah, I just I just got the the flip book, um well mock up of the flip book today. Uh-huh. So um and I have not committed their responses to memory, so I need to oh, refer no. to my cheat sheet. That's okay. <laughs> uh, let's see, one second. So some of the responses, higher education. So they're, they're responding to the question, what does higher education in prison mean to you? And mm-hmm. that was one of the last um, reflection papers that they had to do for me, like responding to that prompt. Uh-huh. And so um, one response, higher education in prison allows for equal opportunity benefiting the betterment of our society inside and outside the walls of incarceration. Um, Another one, prison in the United States is a destructive place to be. Higher education can transform the lives of incarcerated people and provide them with hope for the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'll just read one more. Higher education in prison shines a light of hope on the dark experiences and expectations that are faced within prisons in New York. An education in a New York State prison would give much more than a degree. It would give students an opportunity to change their life. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they really, you know, had some rather um, profound um, answers to the question, and I, I was blown away. You know, I, I wasn't surprised, but I, I was blown away because I, I really did have have a good group, and you know, as well as any other professor, that it. You don't pick. You don't get to pick your students, and so when you get a good group, that is like, oh yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that was that was the experience with that, and it helped that I had had um, the majority of those students in that group in my prior classes. So said so that rapport had already been established. Yeah, I don't think that students realize how much power they have to like affect the quality of the class. Like people yes. think, people think that we have all of the power over whether whether the class is good or not. But really, exactly. I'm just trying to steer the ship <laughs> and get through right, exactly. one exactly. day. And, and if yeah. you guys are, if you're wild today, then class is going to seem chaotic. If you guys are mm-hmm. bored today, then class is going to seem boring. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> if you guys are exactly. really into it, then I'm. Oh, excuse me. I'm going to get really into it too, and then. We're, right. gonna, we're gonna do great, but yeah. If, if you don't want to be there, you're gonna make me feel like I don't want to be there either. I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's give and take. It's a relationship, you know. Yep. We gotta work work together. A relationship. Yeah. Yep. I'm gonna. I'm I'm making a note of that so I can I can use that in my pitch when yeah. this the next semester starts. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Because um, you are essentially in a relationship with your student for 15 weeks. Yep. You know? That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> yep. Um, so what was I going to ask? Oh, uh, so during the course of this project, do you think that their perception of, like, their own education changed at all? Their own college experience or, like, how they value higher ed changed? Yes, yes. Yeah, we, and we ended up um, talking about that in, in for one session and and I don't remember who said it, but it, the issue of taking um, education for granted came up. And so 
they really, you know, they started to check themselves, right? Um, and they started to, to really question why they believed before, you know, that people didn't deserve an education because, um, you know, they're getting one and, and uh, you know, so the, the usual arguments. But, um, yeah, it made them really, uh, I, I know for some people it did really make them um, value the privilege that they have of getting an, of getting a college education uh-huh. and how that how that privilege is not extended to all people yeah. and um, and one of my students as a matter of fact is now working with a um, with juveniles I believe she's working with juveniles um, um, or she was and um, I just got an email from her last week saying that she just graduated her first class out of a um, inside of a prison um, just a couple of weeks ago, so uh, so I had one student who actually went in went into the you know into the field. So I, so that, and that of course that makes my heart smile. Oh yeah, you know? that's really cool. Yeah, so she yeah so she's actually going to come back and be a guest on the panel that I'm organizing um, in for February here. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um. So one question that I I tend to ask at the end of these, but I guess we're kind of doing yours. We got to the students way earlier. So do you find? <laughs> So, like, I imagine there's got to be a billion kinds of myths that students come into your classes with about prisons and how prisons function and yes. why people are there. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you handle that? Uh, um, I guess I don't want to say delicately because I, I never handle anything really delicately. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't known you to be a very... <laughs> You are, um, yeah, I wouldn't just, I wouldn't think of you as like <laughs> we're just gonna tiptoe around your feelings and be very yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so no, I, I mean, I just when when you deal with these issues, it, there is no tiptoeing around. Yeah, right. So you have to face them head on, and so I just, I just straight up tell them, listen. This is what, what, you know, we are going to talk a lot about the experiences of people in prison. And that includes the, you know, the, the men and the women who live there and, and the men and women who work there. Mm-hmm. So because, you know, the officers experience prison, too. They just experience it in different ways. And I've heard this quote before. Uh, I can't remember who said it, but um, loosely translated is that um Corrections officers um, are in prison too. The only difference is they go home at the end of their shift. Yeah. So, um, so I, I try to, and I can't say that I'm always successful in this, but I, I try to, uh, you know, paint as clear of a picture um, that I can that, um, you know, that the, the people in prison are people too, like we were saying earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I find is a lot of my students. Um, have relatives who work in the prison up here, mm-hmm. right? Or or one of the two, and so they come into my classes with the with the beliefs of their relatives who work in the prison. And so, because as you can imagine, and I'm sure they're they're sharing war stories about oh, you yeah. know what happened at work today, mm-hmm. you know. And so then then you know then their children or their cousins or nieces and nephews, whoever they are. You know, 
starts to formulate in their mind, then all people in prison are, are bad, they're monsters and all that. I mean, I've had students run, um, run the gamut of, of how they, um, you know, of how they characterize yeah. people in prison. And so here I am saying, well, no, not actually. And so they, they will, they will, um, so when I push back on those misperceptions that they have, then they, um, uh, interpret that as me being biased and inevitably one, one comment I always get on all of my course evaluations is she's biased. If you don't agree with her, then she doesn't like you and you fail. Uh-huh. And so what I find is that some of the students are not um, emotionally mature yes. enough to accept anyone pushing back on anything that they say or believe. And so I let students know, uh, you know, on the first day of class, listen, I, this, I don't present opinions in this class. Um, I present facts. And you don't have to believe anything that I say or you don't have to agree with anything that I say. Um, because this is not in, this is not an opinion course, mm-hmm. so we deal with facts. So you know, so I just I just let them know that hey, I already know what people say about me. You know that I'm biased. That's you know we all have biases, yes, but I don't present just one side of the story. Yeah. I offer the counter narrative, <laughs> and that's the part that some of these students can't handle. Right? So you know it is what it is, and so um, but after. You know, after you know, maybe about mid mid semester or or a little later than that, you know, again, I'll, I'll see that some people are uh, saying, "Oh, okay," because I used to believe this, and now I see see why. So, for instance, I always do a section on compassionate release, mm-hmm. and I have them write a um, write a, a, a response paper, or we do an in class debate on whether people who are either terminally ill who are incarcerated or people who are, you know, um, uh, aging in prison, should they, should they receive compassionate release so that they can die at home with, with dignity. Mm-hmm. And so after I show a couple of video clips and give them some readings, and then I ultimately find that, you know, the people who thought one way after reading and, and learning, imagine that learning, um, then they start to see, <laughs> oh, well maybe, maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing. And so a lot of it is really just uh, students having to unlearn what they what they've learned. Yeah. Um and so but it and it's it it's difficult for me because um you know as you see me talk about, you know, like these issues of prison are are, are personal for me. Mm-hmm. So do I go into do I go into class with the bias? Of course I do. Mm-hmm. I, and everything that I research, I go with the bias too, because every every teacher has a positionality that he or she um, teaches from. But my bias is my bias does not get in the way of mm-hmm. the work that I. Do. It informs the work that I do, and I think that when um, when students say I'm biased and um, I think they're using bias in the wrong context here. You know, they they believe that um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not even sure where it comes from um, that I don't like them or or if I don't agree with them, then they fail. 
No, they fail because they answered the question wrong. You know, <laughs> whatever. It's a test. It's either this answer is right or this answer is incorrect. So I, you know, uh, the the fact that they think that they fail because I don't like them or because they don't agree with me is ludicrous. So, um, but. I was undergrad undergrad once upon a time a long time ago, so I get it. You know, I get it. <laughs> but it is, but it is, it is just crazy how. <clears throat> and sometimes it's, it's a little scary that here we have future criminal justice practitioners, and they're going into this field with their Trump-like um, beliefs about people in prison. And that is scary as hell. Oh yeah, it's it's the worst. It's it's yeah. one of the worst yeah. parts of this job. Exactly. I like I'll never forget when I when I was up for my third year review. So like sitting in this conference room, right, with all my all the senior faculty around me, in like this like almost like a huddle. It was weird, and there was a, a an anthropologist on our faculty who has since passed away. Um. And Ferguson had just happened. And he was like, so, uh, what are you going to do to prevent another Ferguson? What? <laughs> yeah. I know. I am like, holy shit. What, what am I going to do to prevent? And like, what if, it, what, what if it is one of my students, one of our students who goes out and is the next cop to do something terrible? Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. And then certainly. I mean, that, that was an odd question. Like, how are you supposed to be re- prevent that? Like, you know what I mean? He was, he was an odd man. Okay, God, all right. <laughs> he was, and and making that making that situation more surreal. He he had ALS, and so oh. he was he was insistent on coming to to this review for me, but at that point he couldn't speak anymore. So he was speaking through a, a text to speech program, like an app, on his tablet. So he asked it, but it came out in like the automated voice. And okay. so that just made it even like stranger, I think. Yeah. Like how do I <laughs> like yeah. the last question that I'm ex- like I didn't expect you to be here, which is great. I'm glad that you're you're well enough and you care enough about me to come. Um I'm very worried about you <laughs> being here and like expending this energy on me. But then right. talk about a question like an unfair <laughs> out of Exactly. Like, That's putting a lot of pressure on you. I'm a junior <laughs> faculty who's like, I'm trying to get stuff published so I can have a, <laughs> so I can right, buy a yeah. house and like take care of my kid. <laughs> like, don't why why is suddenly all the responsibility of the nation on my on my shoulders? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a little much. That's a bit much. <laughs> but it's, I mean, I guess not totally like all that said, like. He could have asked the question in a more fair way, right? Yes, like, right. how do you handle these students who have been so, like, saturated in these biases mm-hmm. that are that are going to go through four years of college? It's going to go in one ear and out the other. Exactly. <laughs> and they're going to go straight into the field, and then yes. So yeah, because I'm finding too that. <clears throat> For a lot of a lot of students, the 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 degree is just a means to an end. Yep. They don't care about really learning anything. Oh yeah. Just what do I have to do to pass this class so I can graduate, get this degree, and go to the police academy? Yep. Because you know I have I have several students who um, just this semester alone were taking police exams either 
um, downstate or locally or so it's just it's just a means to an end. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I I really wonder, like, five or ten years out, like, how how do those students reflect on, like, experiences like they get in our classes where we're trying to think about education as kind of a a liberating (laughs) process and not not just like a means to an end here's your c (laughs) you know like exactly do they like i imagine that a lot of them probably don't look very fondly on me at least you know (laughs) (laughs) no that that goes with the territory you know you're not supposed to like your professor right (laughs) yeah yeah i guess yeah yeah i wasn't and having um Having to deal with the topics that I deal with, it, it makes it even harder. And then me being a black woman adds another layer to it. And yeah. so, you know, I'll have semesters where I'm just exhausted, uh-huh. and it's and it's not because of the of the of the of the content itself. It's just you know navigating my campus as the only black woman on a tenure track. Yep. Only black woman professor and all of the black tax that goes along with that, uh-huh. and so like this semester, my my superwoman cape was was especially uh, <laughs> heavy. I had to burn that bitch. <laughs> it's over me. <laughs> There's the title of this episode. <laughs> there it is. You're right. Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Episode whatever with Dr. Bria Willingham. I had to burn that bitch. You know, I'm going to finish binge watching Killing Eve on Hulu and, you know, see where the day takes me because uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I have to finish by um, uh, revisions to my to my book that are due February 1st. So I'm not going to have much of a break. I have a break from teaching, but that's about it. Yeah. So I have some hustling to do in January, but um, yeah, and, and I apply for tenure in January. So, yeah. So how's the book? What's what's the book like? Oh. The big sigh. I'm so sorry for asking you this question. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Like the pain, like, oh my God. So, yeah, so now the, the book is uh, essentially an uh, updated version of my um, dissertation. Uh huh. Um, but, you, you know, writing is revising, and so. Um, during the during the the revisions, you know, turning turning a dissertation into a book is was more or is more work than writing the initial dissertation. <laughs> so it, there's a lot that I had to had to take out. And then when I did, it was like, oh snap! I only have 180 pages. What am I going to do for the rest? So, um, so you know, it's just uh, so what I did for the dissertation was I um. I did a qualitative sex. I'm all qualitative. Uh-huh. And um, and this kind of gets to the other question, too, merging journalism into higher ed. And so, um, you know, I, I like to interview people, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I, I interviewed, um, over I think, about 15, 
people who who teach inside of women's prisons or jails about their experiences of, of doing this work and, and how the politics of prison and the paradox of prison um, creates these you know unique learning opportunities for women in prison. And so, what I'm doing for the book then is adding the voices of women who either started or finished their um, college education in prison and how that's in affecting their reentry as well. And so mm-hmm. what they're doing post incarceration with that education. So, um, so yes, yeah, that, that's, so that's what I'm doing. So it's still, so I, I got the reviewer feedback, um, back in the beginning of the semester. So now I, I have to tackle all of that feedback, all of those suggestions, you know, things to do. So you know how it goes. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> I remember getting, getting the peer review back on my book was, the worst, one of the worst yeah. days. Like, I really... It as I thought. I mean, I knew I had a lot to do. Yeah. So this review was... Um, the review was gentle with me. Gentle, but... Yeah, you got some work to do, but it's not so bad, so here's what you need to do, kind of thing, which I appreciate. Mine yeah. was... And, and I I mean, obviously, I have no clue who, who reviewed it for me, but they gave me 14 pages of, like, line-by-line edits. Oh, wow. They really took some time with that. <laughs> yeah. They dissected it. And so yeah. my editor, like, my editor, and I think we had the same editor, was like, well, <laughs> it was very thorough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are we are happy with this review. You might not be. <laughs> but do with it what you can. And so right. there yeah. was, like, a week of just, like, Anger. <laughs> it's, it's like fine. Like right, I'll fine. do it, but I'm not happy it. about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, similar, similar. <laughs> um, and then, um, then I have a, a piece to finish for, um, not my book, but um, part of an edited collection that's coming out next year on um, women prison researchers. And so I'm writing a piece on. You know, essentially, um, what it's like for me being a prison researcher and having incarcerated relatives. So mm-hmm. how, so and how, how the personal informs the the research. So yeah, and then I just had a piece come out. Um, hang on, this book, um, prisoner reentry in the twenty first century. So. Um, so I wrote again about higher education in women's prisons and how that affects um, women's reentry. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's that's what I been I've been doing, am doing, <laughs> plan yeah. to do, and so, yeah. So um, oh okay about the journalism. Um, yeah. I, I just I, I hate it being a reporter. I hated everything about it. Um, <laughs> I know. Asked and I, answered. <laughs> yeah. So I did that for 10 years. It, it took me 10 years to, it took me two years to realize that I hated it, that it was nothing like I had envisioned it would be. Because ever since eighth grade, all I thought about, and I, it was journalism. I was like, I ate, I slept, I breathed yeah. journalism. And I wanted to be a journalist. And so, you know, so that's, I was focused. And so that's what I went to school for. And that's, you know, into my career. And then two years into it, I was like, ew. I don't like this. So what, what didn't but you like about it? What didn't I like about it? Um, <clears throat> the the cutthroat nature of the newsroom, um, which you know, which which is understandable, but I 
I, I saw some really some really ter- I saw people do some really terrible things in the name of getting a story. Okay. And that to me was not why I got into um, uh-huh. journalism. I mean, I knew that there was competition there, and I knew you had to, you know, it, it was all about getting that story, getting the story first. But I just, it just the way that people, um, some people, uh, just became evil, it, 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 you know, and all in 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 the the sake of getting a story. And I was like, what what is this? This is not what I signed up for. But I didn't know at that time what else to do because all I ever wanted to do was that. So that's uh-huh. why it took me ten years <laughs> to <laughs> actually get out of it, right? Um, and so when I did. I had gotten a um, a fellowship at Ohio at Ohio State. And this was back in 2005, mm-hmm. and it was a fellowship, the Kip- Kiplinger Fellowship for Mid Career Journalists. And so it was all designed to give journalists the one thing that they never have to do, um, never have to do a story, and that's time. Uh-huh. So um, six month fellowship. <clears throat> to work on a single project. And so it was during that time that I decided, I said, I'm definitely, definitely am not going back to a newsroom. I got to figure out what I'm going to do at the end of the six months. So, um, you know, an old classmate of mine from college, she emailed me one day and said, hey, I read in our, um, you know, our um, alumni magazine that you're doing this fellowship at Ohio State. We have a position opening. This was at St. Bonaventure University. Mm-hmm. We have a position opening in our journalism school. I think you'll be great for it. You should apply. And uh-huh. so she talked to Dean. I went for the visit. Long story short, got the job. And so I was working um, there for six years, actually. Um, and I was teaching journalism. And I was doing the, the PhD at Buffalo. So, um, so yeah. And then, then a, a funny thing happened. Uh, the further along that I got in my PhD program, the less interested I, I became in teaching journalism. Yeah. Because after a while, I was like, okay, this is how you write a lead. This is this is what a nut graph is. Blah blah blah, yada yada. And so it was just it, it was not fun for me anymore. In the same way that being an actual reporter had become yeah. um, not fun for me anymore. And so I left that position after like I said, after six years. And um, just to finish up the the, um, the PhD, and I knew the longer that I stayed in in journalism, the harder it would be for me to transition into yeah. social print. So I ended up, um, fortunately, getting a um, a dissertation fellowship at SUNY Oneonta, which is in Central New York State, near between Albany and Binghamton, mm-hmm. and. Um, it was in Social Crim, and it was for two years, and um, that's when I started teaching in in criminal justice, and then from there to Plattsburgh. So it, it worked out. It worked out um, because I'm I'm not a criminologist by trade. You know, my my degree is in American Studies, so mm-hmm. I am you know an inter- interdisciplinary scholar. So I kind of you know the work that I do. Know, branches off into different disciplines so what's the expression jack of all trades, yeah master of none something so, like that a little bit of everything yeah um, yeah yeah so when you were a journalist like were you did you i don't have no idea so this is probably like a really dumb question um, no such thing as a dumb question yes there <laughs> yes there are <laughs> yes there very much are <laughs> yeah. so like how did you 
how did you go from like what what got you interested in the, in like the criminal justice stuff was it like was that stuff that you were reporting on that you just wanted to yeah. do like more background on or um well a little bit of everything so um number one um my family okay so like i said i have um i have a brother who is 27 years into a life sentence mm-hmm. um uh, I have a, a nephew who is about, I think about um, coming up on 20 years of his life sentence. You know, my father was incarcerated at one point, my brother-in-law. And so it, for me, it was, and, and this kind of came out, out of that fellowship too. Um, <clears throat> when I did my, my project was on the 25th anniversary of the, the first Million Man March. Mm-hmm. And so I, this op-ed that ran in, in um, USA Today about you know given my perspective of this anniversary from my point of view as a black woman whose you know relatives are incarcerated and so it was out of that that i wanted to learn more about this system that incarcerates Mm -hmm. so many people and so many families like mine yeah so that's where that's where the the research i did grew out of that but when i was a reporter um part of my beat was um, covering police because every new reporter, you know, you, you you cannot be a reporter unless you cover the police beat at least one time, right? At least once. So okay. it's kind of like covering police is kind of like the, at least it was back then. Um, it was like the training ground for new for new reporters, okay. right? So um, so I did the police beat and I did um, I did some criminal trials too, uh-huh. and so I can distinctly remember one time. I'm sitting in court and um, uh, a, a whole row of black men were paraded into the into the courtroom, and, you know, in the prison jumpsuit, shackled at the wrists, the waist, and and the um, the ankles, and they're paraded in. And I remember that that picture being so jarring to me yeah. that I said to myself, and I wasn't joking when I said this, but it, I guess it's funny now. And I said, oh, no wonder why you're single. All of the black men are in jail. And so it was like, I said, you know, so when I said it to myself, I was not joking because that's how jarring that picture was. And so it was like, why so many black men? And so, but at that time though, it it still wasn't registering to me that, you know, hey, these these are the the seeds of, 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 Dr. Willingham had been planted at that moment because, huh. uh, you know, just a couple years later, I would be, uh, you know, beginning my academic career in this area. Yeah. There's a, there's like a project out there. I don't want to do it, <laughs> but <laughs> like, I feel like so many people in this field have like really tragic stories that got them into this work. Yeah. <laughs> And it's funny you say that because um, some friends of mine and I were just having this conversation a couple weeks ago when we were in Mississippi at a uh, mass incarceration conference. So, like one of my friends, two of her two her two sons are serving life sentences in prison. Um, another friend um, spent uh, twenty years in prison, um, and another friend, you know, she has a. Um, uh, nephew or no cousin who's incarcerated so we so we were just just all commiserating as black women with these experiences of of either having been incarcerated or having loved ones in prison and and how that that informs our work and and how that is why we do Mm -hmm. what we do so we're having this conversation then we said 
why don't we why, why don't we organize our own panel on this you know we are our own <laughs> panelists about this issue and so so yeah so it's a project and you're right and my friends and I are talking about it so stay tuned <laughs> 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 yeah but, but it's also, that's also part of what I'm you know what I'm writing for this for this one chapter yeah too and it's and because um, I spoke about it last year um, at Princeton as well during one of their programs you know, just about what is, you know, what what it has meant to for me, you know, all of these years to, you know, to be doing this work and being directly um, related to the work. That's why, it's, you know, I said earlier that of course I come into my class with some bias because that's yeah. my position out. You know, you can't do not that, but I don't, I don't, but I also, I also don't self-disclose. So I don't walk into my class and say, hey, this is. CRI 353, Punishment in Society. It's about prisons, and I have, you know, people in prison. So, you know, I don't, that's not that's not my introduction. So, yeah. So, yeah. so I was going to ask you this before when you were talking about your biases, but we kind of went in a different direction. But now that we're back, um, <laughs> so this came up. Um, I'm trying to think about this, like my recording schedule. So I talked to uh, Dr. Jessica Sierra about this, and then Dr. Michael Sierra um, Arovalo about this. Um, like the myth of objectivity and how oh, like, we're moving. It seems to be at least like a new generation of scholars moving away from this idea that we can teach this stuff objectively or that objectivity exists and that, you know, me search is bad. And so <laughs> I, I'm guessing you've got <laughs> some thoughts on that. <laughs> Objectivity is a lie. It is a damn lie. Okay. Yep. <laughs> and, and, and you can re- you can say that you're being objective, but you're lying when you say that, right? <laughs> because in, in, okay, well, so what's really interesting about that too is when I when I was a reporter, you know, and, and when I was in J school, it was you know you have to remain objective. Your job is only to get the facts and report the story. Leave your personal opinions out of it, and so on and so forth. Okay, cool. However, and I used to tell my students in my in my um, news writing classes this: there are fifteen people in this room. I can give you all the same assignment, and I will get fifteen different stories. Because while we are trying to convince ourselves that objectivity exists unknowingly to us we are reporting the story from our own perspective Mm -hmm. so if you have an assignment and you whatever the topic is and you believe let's just say the topic is prison okay and you believe that um all people in prison are terrible monsters then you are going to report this that story from that positionality so you are going to seek out People who was behind you. <laughs> One of my dogs is coming down to say, uh, say hi. So I'm like, what do you see? Uh, <laughs> do you see dead people? <laughs> I do tell my students that I see ghosts. Like, okay, <laughs> but just to refer to like this this project I've been working on, <laughs> and, it, and it's like it's a good way of framing like, you know. Elizabeth Short and the Black Dahlia case, like, and on the way that that her life was covered, and like the way that her story is talked about, is is really unfair to her, right? Mm-hmm. And trying yeah. to like humanize her, or 
Um, I've developed this weird thing with the McKinley assassination, like a weird thing to get, to get borderline obsessed with, but like talking about how we don't typically think about presidential assassinations as like a person dying as much as like an object has gone away. Um, and so stuff like that. So like the ghost metaphor, I think is a good way to frame it for them. Like that makes it more accessible, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> walking in the first day of class and being like, I have this problem. I talk to ghosts <laughs> is like a good attention grabber. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm class with you right now. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I, and the, like I talked about them a lot in the one class and I, like the last day I said that I, I'm pretty sure the ghosts are satisfied with you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good, it's a good like gimmick to lean into. Drive up my yeah. attendance. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we were talking about objectivity, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I'll just say, you know, if I give you all all fifteen people the same story, you're gonna come back. Uh, I'll have fifteen different um, stories because you know whatever you believe is how you are going to approach that story. So you're going to find sources that that fits your the narrative in your head uh-huh. so um so the same thing so with research with academic research and and I, I talk a little bit about this in a different piece that i wrote about um uh, doing a study on incarcerated fathers and their children mm-hmm. and um and, and how i you know i had to i had to learn that um objectivity doesn't exist and mm-hmm. i learned that um from actually a, a guy who's who's in prison who um, is part of this study and one of my um, former colleagues and I remember one time he he told me you know you, you're at some point you're going to have to figure out how um, you know how you how you are going to put yourself in in your research like how are you going to navigate your own life in your research I'm like well the research it's not about me it's it's about the people who I'm researching and he said that's a lie. He said, you are lying to yourself if you think that you are not part of your own research. Mm-hmm. And so we fought, you know, over beers about that. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> no, I'm not, you're wrong. He says, no, I'm not, you're wrong. And so, and then I had to one day come back to her. Remember that time over beers when we had that argument? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you were right. So, <laughs> so, yeah, so it, it does it does not exist because, you know, just as teachers, as researchers, we approach our work with our with a certain um, um, positionality, and that guides the work, but that doesn't mean that it um, that it has to get in the way of the work, right? And so, uh, I believe it was um, I don't know where I saw this, uh, maybe in John Cresswell's book about um, qualitative research methods about the about bracketing. You know, mm-hmm. when you you acknowledge your um, your biases as the researcher and mm-hmm. you put it in a nice set of brackets. And say, okay, I acknowledge them; they're out there, and it's, but you set them to the side mm-hmm. so that they not, you know, interfere with your work. Yeah. But, but, but by acknowledging it, you know, it's kind of like addressing the elephant in the room, and so you can proceed with your work in, you know, in telling the stories of, you know, your research subjects or, you know, whatever it is, without you always saying, you know. But yes, I, ha- I have incarcerated relatives too, and this and that, and that. You know what I'm saying? So, so yeah. So no, objectivity does not exist. It just doesn't. 
And I don't care who disagrees with me because I'm right. <laughs> As my students would say, if you disagree with her, you're going to fail. She doesn't like you. (laughs) I think that's a perfect spot to wrap this up. (laughs) And it's like, oh my God, I will not talk to her again. (laughs) Nope. I could talk to you for a lot longer, but I got a dog down here who's probably, I don't think you can hear her, but she, like she's smelling all around down here because the, my kids were down here the other day. And so there's probably like lots of new little kid smells, um, but oh, she yeah. she's a beagle, but she snorts when she's sniffing. <laughs> so I don't I probably didn't come over, but I bet when Mark, my producer, listens to this, there's probably like this. She sounds like a pig, <laughs> like oh, this, no. like this snuffling in the background. And I'm trying to like <laughs> like get away, <laughs> working. <laughs> Yeah, you too. Yep. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So, we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. So if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.